I'm glad you're here, and um, we're going to get uh, the Christmas series started. Uh, but first, I have like 9,000 announcements to make. So let's start with uh, construction stuff. Um, so my, my son Elijah, he's going to be 15 in a couple weeks. When he was younger and he got excited about Christmas, he would go, Ee! and that's where I am with like, Ee! Um, like the, the, over the next few uh, uh, weeks, this coming week, super excited, sound panels go in, like tons of sound panels, which are going to make a huge difference in, in, the, um, in the way this room sounds, take the echo out. Like, I'm, I'm really excited about the impact that the sound panels are going to make. That happens this week, thanks to everyone who helped us get the chairs together. Um, we got that going, and um, uh, the lobby cabinetry is done in mid-December. Men's room is going to be done at the end of this coming week. Women's room is done now, so um, a big improvement over there. And then the week between Christmas and New Year's, the carpet goes in. Carpet samples are over there, so you can kind of see it if you want to, what we're, what we're putting in. But um, it's going to go in here, lobby, hallway, women's bathroom, like that side room of the women's bathroom, not you know in the women's bathroom itself, but you'll see how that all Anyway, I'm super excited about those changes. Got you know the lights. Um, we're gonna be dimmable. That's gonna happen. Incidentally, those lights, you know those old dishes that were in here, they're like they were like six feet. I just I thought like they were asking where to store them, and I told them like oh I got a little back office in there that you can. But it was like the whole office. So um, okay, there's that. Um, then. Um, Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve services, we got three of them, December 23rd at 7 p.m., December 24th at 2 and 4 p.m., they're all identical. Um, there will be no service on Christmas Day because of all the energy that goes into Christmas and Christmas, Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year in case you weren't aware of that. So no services Christmas Day. And then the following Sunday, the 1st, January 1st, we're going to do a virtual service only for January 1st, and then we'll get picked back up into the normal 9.30 and 11 o'clock on January 8th, uh, once, once we get there. Um, the Christmas Eve service, like always, we will have a, take up an offering, and that will go 100% out to um, Love Pure. That's our, um, uh, those are our homegrown missionaries in Costa Rica. Take a quick look at uh, what it's going to. Hey everybody, I am here with Christy Badley from Love Pure, and this year 100% of our Christmas Eve offerings are going to go to the Love Pure ministry in Costa Rica. So I asked Christy to share a little bit of uh, what they've been doing. Hi everybody, we're just here visiting and um, just wanted to check in with everybody. We're having a really great six months there. Um, we counted in October, we've seen 140 kids come through our center. We are um, building relationships, we're rebuilding houses, we're feeding kids, we are um, making a difference down there. And we're starting new programs. We have a girls club that's meeting on Saturdays now, we have a preschool club we're trying to get started, we have a mentorship program that's in the works for 2023, so we have a lot of exciting things going on, thanks to you guys. Yeah, so please consider giving to that offering because we're all about kids, and now we get to bless kids in Costa Rica through Love Pure. So please consider giving. Thanks a lot. So the goal is 45000 and that covers their whole budget. They pay their own expenses through um, their business, but um, um, the R45 goes to their whole budget with those kids, um, 140 in one month alone. Um, they're, if you're brand new to this, they're Nicaraguan refugee children 
living in this slum in Costa Rica, and they left the comforts of Polaris Christian Church in their home here and started that ministry there. And um, so we wanna, we've done it the past couple years, 45000 is the goal, and that's going to take some sizable generosity from those of us that are at a life stage and, and have the ability to do that. So all we ever ask is that you pray about that and see if it's something God um, is, is asking you to give toward and then that you're obedient to that. Um, what else? Um, 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 Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, 6 p.m. Um, next Sunday is our like kids, um, teen, student, Christmas service, 930 and 11, both the same kids stuff throughout. Um, they're participating in the service, and so um, there's a rehearsal for that. If you have a kid that is going to be a part of that, that's um, you know preschool on up through um, um, fifth grade. Uh, the rehearsal's this Wednesday here in this room. Stick around. It's going to be short, um, so don't like drop your kids off and go Christmas shopping or anything like that. Not that any parent would ever consider that. Um, we also, two more things, giving trees in the back in the lobby, and that you take a tag, bring the item, it goes to our street ministry in Akron, um, just like we've done other years, put the item in the bin that's out there, and then finally, uh, we need some slide help, uh, people up in the booth that run in slides, we just could use some more volunteers, so probably need some tech knowledge for that, uh, and some ability to um, think under pressure, Not it's not like, you know, crazy, it's not like a NASA control room or something like that, but just, you know, it's the offensive line of the service. You only get noticed if you mess up. <clears throat> but uh, if that's, if that's uh, if something that interests you, then you need to see our worship pastor, Marcus, who was sitting right there, and now he's gone. He's like a ninja. He just turned. He's gone. Um, all right, so, well, there he is. Yeah, he left. All right. We're going to start the Christmas uh, sermon stuff, and uh, if, if you want, like I like for everybody to follow along in the Bible so that anybody, like I have a real heart for people that want to get going with the Bible and aren't really familiar with it, so if everybody reads out of it, then nobody feels like they stand out or anything. So the Bibles are in the, under the seat in front of you, and, um, and if you don't have a readable Bible um, uh, at home, feel free to take that with you. It's yours. It's a gift. We'd love for you to have it and mark it up, uh, bend, you know, the corners of the pages and, and highlight it and do all that stuff. Um, it's yours to keep if you need it. Um, we'll get to Matthew 9 in a minute. Matthew 9, we're going to start in Matthew 9, and that is on page uh, 973. So um, when I think about Christmas, and I, am, I, I love Christmas, it's my favorite time of the year. I absolutely hate the other side of Christmas and those, you know, two and a three months of of just darkness and awfulness, but we're not there yet. We're, we're at the Christmas season. Uh, and, and one of the, for me, one of the, one of the enduring symbols of Christmas is the Christmas table. I was, I was blessed to be a part of a, of a great family. Um, um, only child, me, my mom and dad, uh, you know, still very close, um, and, and, and my entire extended family, and we'd have these gatherings. And so, like, it started out for me just, any, uh, the, the family table any given night, uh, my, my, my mom is a part of, uh, like there's Amish heritage there, my granny, her maiden name is Yoder, and so um, her grandpa, or her dad actually, um, moved away from the Amish lifestyle, uh, but still very much that, that cooking stayed, and so uh, my family growing up, it was, you know, I, I was, I didn't even ask. 
I knew better than to ask to not be at the dinner table. We were at the dinner table nearly every night with a multi-course meal, usually you know a main dish and and, and multiple sides. Um, you know, start carbon it up, uh, starch everywhere, and butter at the dinner table. But it was good stuff. All my friends loved to come over and have dinner with us. But the the, the dinner table was was expected, um, and it was loving. And uh, then extended family, you know, all the gatherings, there would be lots of food and, and time together at the table. Every Sunday night, um, extended family got together and, and ate uh, Sunday dinner together. And then at Christmas, of course, tons of food. Even now, and I'm still very blessed, and I know I'm, I'm, I take it for granted, but um, still my parents are both with us. And um, we'll, we'll go after Christmas Eve service. Um, me, my boys, and my wife will go and uh, down to Maslin, and we'll sit at the, the table, and my mom just makes, it's not very Amish, but it's, it's deep-fried deliciousness, and there's this huge spread of deep-fried food, and we'll eat that, we'll have that meal together, and it's cold and dark outside, but it's glowing and warm with love and gratitude and all that, you know, there around that table, and so um, I, I, the table is a symbol for me of love and acceptance. And I know that, that some of you, that might not, you know, might not be the case. But I think no matter uh, what your background has been, you can at least appreciate the idea of the table being a place of love and acceptance and, and um, you know, thankfulness and, and all those things. And so <clears throat> I want that imagery in your head because what we're going to do is we're going to look at, at the Gospels and at the Christmas story. And I think we'll see um, that... Whether or not you have an invitation to that kind of a table here on earth with your family or with a family, um, what we're going to see is you have that invitation from God himself. So uh, the Christmas story points to that amazing open invitation to all of us from God to sit at that kind of table. So that's where we need to start. Uh, this sermon about Jesus' birth and what it means for people. Um, because Jesus' birth shows us that whether we know it or not or feel it with this life and from our birth families, um, we can know that table kind of feeling coming straight from God. So, uh, the details of Jesus' birth, like the actual details of his actual birth, are only in one of the four Gospels. So the Gospels are the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and only one of them has the actual details of Jesus' birth in it, and that's the Gospel of, of Luke, that Luke penned and, and Charlie Brown Christmas made it famous. Um, Mark starts his Gospel with Jesus as an adult. John does his own thing with his Gospel, and Matthew gives us details before the birth and after the birth, but his details are all around a theme. And I love that theme, and we're going to talk about that theme today because it's very relevant for us. Uh, but I think that the theme really starts, uh, or appreciating his theme, comes from Matthew sharing his own story in Matthew chapter 9. So Matthew uh, starts his story uh, with details surrounding the birth of Jesus, and it's not until chapter 9 that he inserts himself in his story of encountering Jesus. So if you don't mind, would love for you to turn, uh, maybe you're already there, 
to, to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going we're gonna to start, I want to read for you Matthew's story, and we'll talk a little bit about um, the implications of that uh, on, on the Christmas story or his details within, within his gospel about the birth of Jesus. So uh, I'm going to start in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, he was sitting at the table, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders of the day, they saw, um, they saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's seven sentences with inexhaustible implications for us today. So just to make sure everybody's on the same page, tax collectors back then, nobody really enjoys interacting with tax collectors about taxes today, I don't think. Um, nobody gets excited. Like we might appreciate uh, paying taxes where it goes, but nobody gets excited about paying taxes. But in those days it ran a little bit deeper because tax collectors worked for the Roman government and the dynamics, the political dynamics in Jesus' day with the Jewish people, very proud people, um, rightly so, the people of God, they were uh, oppressed by the Roman government. And Rome was like evil empire and stood for all kinds of things that they were really against, especially their, their uh, religious practices. And the idea that you know, they're getting taxed heavily uh, from Rome uh, to, to be a part of, and their money's going to, um, uh, to these practices, that, and to their own, it's like they're paying for their own oppression. And tax collectors were Jewish people who were working with the evil empire to take money from other Jewish people and give it to the evil empire. So this was, this was not something that was like, uh, this didn't gain them any friends. Not to mention the fact that it was typically understood that tax collectors were corrupt and dishonest. And they would take money uh, on the side above and beyond taxes just because they could and because they wanted to. And they also were renowned for hanging around shady people, the other outcasts uh, of people of questionable character because they all kind of flocked together. And, and they were clearly the religious outcasts. Well, then there's Jesus who comes along to this tax collector, Matthew, and says, follow me. Now, those were loaded words. In an ancient Jewish context, and every Jew reading this would have known, that means Jesus invited Matthew, follow me, was a rabbi saying, hey, you can be a part of my team. I want you with me. I want you to eat with me. I want you to walk with me. I accept you as one of my own. You're in the inner circle. So Matthew gets this invitation to be in the inner circle of the Messiah. Now this is a problem for the religious elite of the day because they think they belong there. And they would never invite the Matthews of the world and his friends. But Matthew gets this invitation to leave his life and follow Jesus and eat with him. And when the religious elite object to that, 
Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, because they, they thought they belonged. If God's doing anything in this world, they belong at the table, not, not the riffraff. <clears throat> and they raise issue, and Jesus defends Matthew. And so you think about how excited Matthew must have been when it got time for him as he's writing his gospel to write his story. Like This is my story of the time Jesus picked me for his team and defended me against the religious elite. Now that's pretty life-changing stuff. Like That would have no doubt changed and shaped everything about every day in Matthew's life. And so when we see him tell his story of Jesus, the things he chooses to include fit around that theme. And we're going to see that in, in the first part of Matthew around the birth of Jesus. The themes that are important to Matthew are themes of inclusion. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus breaks categories. Because what that showed in Matthew 9 is that the categories of who's in and who's out were all blown up. As humans, we love to create categories. Who's in, who's out, who belongs, who doesn't. That's especially true in the, in the religion world. Well, what we see is that while the Matthews of the world weren't invited to religious tables, they were invited to God's table. And I think we're going to see ourselves in these stories. So if you, do, if, you, if you don't mind, turn back to Matthew chapter 1. <coughs> Matthew 1. It's on page 965. And we're going to read a little bit of the genealogy. Now don't panic. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let me tell you a little bit about genealogies. Why are they there? Why are they important? They're not very important to us in 2020. 2022. <laughs> Let's not go back to 2020. <laughs> if only it were 2020 again. <clears throat> um... Genealogies were very important in the ancient world on up through the Middle Ages because they justified a king. If there's a king or a ruler or you know, royalty, um, genealogies talked about their bloodline. So genealogies justified the ruler and they sort of um, built the brand of the leader. So you would connect yourself with all these people and that would say, this is why I belong as king, And so Jesus was king of the kingdom of God. He had a kingdom. And Matthew wants to connect him with David because everyone believes the Messiah would be of the lineage of David. Now, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm struggling here. <clears throat> um, in the ancient world, and this is well documented, like pharaohs and rulers would have these genealogies, but they were airbrushed. There'd be gaps in these genealogies because they would, they would put the stories in that you wanted in, but when there was scandal, those stories got left out. Okay, so keep that in mind too. Why? Because of branding. They didn't, you know, this is your, this is your propaganda, so to speak, to say this is why I belong as king. So you put the good stuff in, you left the good stuff out. Well, knowing what we know about Matthew and his story, let's take a look at the way he chooses to show Jesus through this genealogy that is supposed to justify a king and, and um, build the brand. Okay, so this is Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Let's stop right there, okay? Man, 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 brother, woman, whose mother was Tamar. So for some reason, Matthew breaks the male line of presentation and brings up Tamar. Doesn't fit the flow. Why does he do that? I'm glad you asked. Everyone in the ancient world, in the Jewish world, was would have, every capable Jew would understood that they, they had memorized the book of Genesis. <clears throat> and as Genesis lays out the stories of these people, <clears throat> in Genesis 38, we get this scandal. We get this embarrassing scandal of the line of Abraham, where Tamar, uh, she's a widow, and she needs protection. Because as a widow, you're you know, very vulnerable in the ancient world. Um, and so she devises a scheme. She's going to pose as a prostitute and wait for Judah, her father-in-law, to come along and hire her for her services. Now, in the ancient world, the ladies kept everything covered more so than what we would think about in that kind of a situation. There's some kids in here, so I'm going to kind of doctor this up a little bit. So this is historically plausible that you could do that and not be recognized. So she has this scheme, and Judah, who she must have just understood, yeah, I'll just go there and pretend to be that, and he'll, you know he's going to hire me. And he does, and she gets pregnant with her father-in-law's kid. That's scandalous. I don't care what century you're a part of. That's like, that's scandalous. That's not something you talk about at the Christmas dinner table. That's the kind of thing you leave out of the royal genealogy. But you look at what Matthew does, like, like there's, no, there, there's no reason for him to talk about Genesis 38 and Tamar, like, like if I'm the, people are like, why, why are you putting that in there? Don't talk about that. But we know Matthew's story. Why is it important to Matthew? Because if, if Tamar wasn't included in that, you don't make that connection. But he wants her specifically in this genealogy. Why? Because we know his story. We know that he understands as well as anybody that Jesus came to include people who have no business at the table. And so when he tells us about this king and builds the brand of the king, he includes the scandal. And I appreciate that. Let's take a look at, uh, let's, let's continue on. <clears throat> Verse 5. Salmon or salmon, I don't know whether you pronounce that like the fish or not. That's how you spell it. <clears throat> salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. 
Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Rahab, whoof, Canaanite prostitute. Again, there he goes, including the ladies, which wasn't common in a genealogy. And he makes sure that everybody knows that Rahab is a part of the lineage. And, and he wouldn't have had to do that. Like, if he didn't do that, you would never connect Rahab with Jesus. And yet it's important to him that Rahab's included. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. The fact that she was a prostitute is the second thing that was wrong with her. Okay, that Canaanite, like synonymous with the enemies of God and the people of God and the plans of God and the purposes of God, Canaanites were the OG bad guys in the Bible. Canaanites were the bad guys. They believed the wrong things. They were... And here's a Canaanite, and she's a prostitute. Like she doesn't belong in the story. She doesn't belong at the Christmas table. And yet, for Matthew, she gets a seat at the table. She makes the cut. She makes the genealogy cut. Why? Inclusion. Matthew wants for you to know and me to know that even she is a part of the story. And then Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. <clears throat> this would be like, like if you think about the, Mo the Moabite, that would, that would be like me running for president and saying, hey, I want you all to know that my great-grandmother was Iranian and I have a cousin in the Taliban. Vote for me. Like, you don't want that link. A Moabite? They were ferocious, vicious enemies of God in the Old Testament. And yet Matthew, and side note, for me personally, um, when I have my questioning moments and my moments of doubt, and I think about the historical reliability of the Gospels, this is where I start. If it's not true, it makes really bad propaganda. Like you don't set out to start a religion for some kind of weird power agenda and talk about a savior who is connected with these embarrassing scandals in the Old Testament and who is betrayed by a friend and killed by Rome and then raised from the dead but um, doesn't like really stand out and, and, and some of his disciples don't even believe that it's really him and he doesn't like you know, kill his enemies uh, from his resurrection. He doesn't go all John Wick on his enemies when he comes out of the tomb. He just kind of lays low and then ascends. Like that's not good propaganda. This stuff is intentional and it's intentional because Matthew wants us to know who gets invited to the table later in verse 10, he mentions Manasseh in the King Manasseh was a horrible human being. Horrible human being. He threw his children in the fire to worship other gods. He's a part of the lineage. Matthew's like, and then there's King Manasseh. If I were talking to Matthew back then, I'd be like, dude, don't include. Just, just don't do the genealogy. Nobody in 2022 is going to want to read it anyway. Like, they're going to skip it. But you see what he does there? You see the theme? You know his story? And he gets it. 
He gets what it's like for the religious somebodies of the world to exclude you. And he gets what it feels like to have Jesus extend the, table, the invitation to his table. And from the start, he says, and I want everybody to know that these people are invited. Now, let's look at Genesis 2. I'm sorry, Matthew 2. Let's look at Matthew 2. Another story that doesn't belong if you're trying to build the brand of God coming to earth. Matthew 2, it's on, it's on page 966. And now the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew's the only one that includes these guys. Very famous part of the Christmas story. Matthew's the only one that brought them to the table, okay? Because here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came from uh, Jerusalem. That's the three wise men. They think there are three because there were three gifts they had. doesn't really say how many. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those were highly symbolic. And I'm going to talk about that at the Christmas Eve service. A little teaser for you. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Do you know who the Magi were? They were like freaky sorcerers. Astrology divination, witchcraft stuff, stuff that would have got you killed in the Old Testament. They don't, like, like they were into dark stuff. I would be uncomfortable being around them right now for like exorcist stuff, like the dark stuff that they're, they don't belong <coughs> in this story. And yet Matthew brings them to the table. If he hadn't told about them, they wouldn't be a. They weren't even at the mange, like, I'm going to ruin your little, you know, piano nativity displays. They showed up like two years after Jesus was born. That's why they find him in a house and they see the child, not the baby. If Matthew didn't talk about the Magi, we would never know that there were sorcerers that were involved in. And how they get there, God invited them. There was a star and, and God drew them. And Matthew knows his story, and he wants us to know. And even the Magi were invited to the Jesus story. You see that theme? How important it is to Matthew to tell us who is invited to the Christmas table. Now I'm going to have the band come on up for, for the last song while I wrap this up. Um, <clears throat> in the book of Revelation, we see an invitation from Jesus. And really, throughout the whole New Testament, we see this theme. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a third of the New Testament. And all throughout, he wants us to know the invitation of God is, is, is an open invitation. Because Paul, Paul, was, uh, Paul persecuted Christians. So he knew what it meant. Luke in Luke's gospel, there's all these stories of all these characters. There's a father who throws a feast and invites everybody and, and says, come and, and, and dine at my banquet. 
And it's for everybody, because Luke knew. John and his gospel filled with all kinds of people who were invited into the Jesus story. John was a barroom brawler before he met Jesus. His nickname was this, one of the sons of thunder, meaning that he threw down. He threw hands. He knew what it was like to be transformed by Jesus. Peter, same kind of a thing. Every tongue, tribe, nation, all kinds of people invited into this movement. And so we get to Revelation chapter 3. And Jesus says this, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone, that's you, that's me, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So this Christmas, whenever you see a table set, even if it's on TV, I hope you think about Jesus and the table that God himself invited you to that first Christmas. Think about the characters that were invited to eat with Jesus. The invitation is for you, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you're going through. There is great hope for you and there is great hope for everyone because we are all invited to eat at God's table.